From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, suicide rates in the U.S. are at an all-time high. We'll discuss this growing public health problem with a Mayo Clinic expert. The vast majority of these folks have had some contact with their primary care office within a few months of their actual suicide. So there is a tremendous opportunity from a population health standpoint that justifies that screening and working with primary care teams to actually ask about those suicide questions. Also on the program, we'll learn about genetic testing and how it could not only predict disease, but improve your health. And we'll explain why regular physical activity is key to maintaining health as you age. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the rate of suicide in the United States increased almost 25% between 1999 and 2014. There are about, believe it or not, Tracy, 120 suicides per day in the U.S., and it is now the 10th leading cause of death in America. While the rate of deaths resulting from suicide remained higher among males, females attempted suicide more often than males according to the CDC report. Suicide has long been thought of as a mental health problem, but the CDC now warns that it's become a public health problem as well. Well, here to talk about suicide rates and suicide prevention is Mayo Clinic psychologist, Dr. Craig Sawchuk. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Sawchuk. Nice to see you. All right, Tom, Tracy, thank you for having me back, and I wish it was a lighter topic that we could talk right. about today. It's a difficult subject for sure, and the statistics show that the suicide rate has recently surged to a 30-year high. How do you explain that? Well, there's a variety of factors that are likely playing into this, but when we actually look back in history, one of the big drivers of increased suicide rates are economic downturns. If, in fact, we look back to 1932 and the Great Depression, that was actually the highest suicide rate that we've seen in the United States. So that is one so among So that was the, even higher than today? Yeah, it was actually the, the it was depression. 70% higher than it is today back in 1932. Nonetheless, trending upwards of 25% change over a 15-year period is a major public health concern. It's unusual to look at as a trend, but is that fair to say that's what it is? Yeah, it's not the type of trend that we would like, but this is where we transition from a mental health really to a public health type of issue. But just like with everything, there are a number of different factors that are likely contributing to these elevated rates that we're seeing over time. We do need to talk about uh, suicide as as a population. Yeah, definitely. You know, in in my profession, as in any healthcare profession, this is the hardest thing to deal with because you're, you know, we're tasked uh, to help people, uh, to keep them alive, to help their quality of life and losing a life uh, through suicide. There's, there's no good outcome that comes from that. Someone who might think though, that as we talk about it, we make suicide more acceptable and that maybe we shouldn't talk about suicide? Actually, that's probably been the problem, uh, one of the many problems over the years. Um, you know, in one of our earlier radio shows, we talked about screening for depression. For several years, we didn't do it, and now we're starting to do that. So it's helping us to detect these problems earlier on. I think there's a, still a tremendous amount of work that we can do um, to not only uh, talk about how do we better manage mental health problems, but how do we assess and subsequently manage suicide. You suggested early on that the economy has a lot to 
to do with the suicide rate, interpreting that correctly? That is correct. And, and, and what else? There's got to be some other factors that are involved that accounts for, because the economy was bad, uh, you know, five or six years ago. It's not good now, but the economy isn't really bad. Right. So th- there is a variety of different factors. And, you know, when we look at the increase in rates from 1999 to 2014, um, that is almost across the board, save for a couple of exceptions in the data, but almost across the board, every age group, um, a number of ethnicities and, and genders have all shown some change or some transition. I think when we start to look at risk factors, we try to break them down a little bit more. So let's let's talk about demographic factors. Um, and Tom, I believe you, you had mentioned this a little bit earlier on, that uh, males are more likely to commit suicide than females. In fact, males are about three and a half times more likely to commit suicide, whereas females may attempt it a lot more often. We see an age, and one of the largest groups that have increased is that middle-aged group. Um, so those between 45 and 64 years old, that's increasing. That's also prime time where people are really establishing themselves, sometimes even moving closer to retirement. And then we get into those economic factors that there's a lot of job stress and instability that can also happen. I have to say, though, the reason why I contacted you and said we need to talk about suicide is because I read an article that said, and I have a teenage girl at my house, uh, that teen girls, the the rate of suicide is just at an alarming rate is increasing. So what what do teenage girls care about the economy? Well, and, and that's why there's a number of other factors that are going on, a number of other social pressures. There is, you know, one of the big factors that we do run into as well that um, has been much better documented as increased risk for suicide uh, is social isolation. Now, we take the idea of what happens when some folks get older, become more medically ill, um, suffer depression or pain-related issues, and they pull back and they withdraw from others. Same thing can happen in retirement. If we flip it to the other side of the developmental continuum, uh, there's a lot about um, social connectedness when you're a teenager. And in many ways, that can make or break a person's mood. There's a lot of different ways that we look at how social media can actually be a really, really helpful thing for people staying connected. And unfortunately, it can also be an area that can really reinforce isolation as well. So we've got demographics, but you say that demographically, it's pretty much across the board where the rates of suicide have increased. It's not one particular group over another. That, that's correct. There are a couple of exceptions. Uh, so we did see when you get a closer look at the data, uh, African-American males, that rate had slightly declined as well, as well as folks uh, aged 75 and older, that had declined slightly as well too. But otherwise, unfortunately, across the board, uh, that has shown up. You know, Back to Tracy's point, they even looked at uh, rates of suicide between uh, young girls between the ages of 10 and 14 years old. Back in 1999, 50 people in the population had committed suicide. Now it's up to 150. That's three times higher. That is 150 more people uh, that that have died every year. And and that is a major public health issue. Are teenagers more likely to think about suicide or attempt or complete suicide? 
if other people around them have done it, are they more susceptible to that idea? Yes, and actually we know it's not only teenagers, uh, but it can also be anybody around the the life spectrum. Um, The closer people are to you that pass away from suicide, that does in fact increase your risk. It's been well known when there's been a completed suicide within the family, that increases your risk as well too. Sometimes we can use that as a protective way when we're talking to adults or parents who are struggling with suicide is just uh, making them more aware of the impact that this can actually have on their family. But then we get back to social media and how much information gets played out in terms of maybe people that they look up to, people they feel connected with committing suicide, that can also increase their risk. Let's talk about a couple of specific groups and military. It seems like it's it's fairly common in the military. Is Mm -hmm. that true? That's true. Uh, Depending upon the study that you look at when you compare uh, civilian populations to military populations, uh, military populations may be at a rate of suicide 50% higher than a civilian population. Although there are many factors uh, definitely that can play into that, um, some of the things that we do know is that folks in the military have more access to firearms. Um, Whenever firearms are used in a suicide, it's an 85% chance that that could be fatal to them as opposed to other forms of suicide. And isn't that the males will complete a suicide because they more likely use a firearm? There's more males in the military? Yeah, I think it partially can explain that as well as the different stressors that people are involved and exposed to in the military, sometimes untreated uh, post-traumatic stress and depression difficulty sustaining employment afterwards, risk for substance use. Again, these are all factors that we see in the general population that can also elevate risk, but in certain populations, and the military may be one of them, they may be exposed to more of these risk factors, but also have more access to means as well, too. All right, so we've got uh, social factors, we've got the economy, we've got health issues, and we've got a positive family history, all of which can increase the risk for suicide. All of those do increase the risk for suicide. All right, we're talking about the public health problem of suicide with Mayo Clinic psychologist, Dr. Craig Sawchuk. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more with Dr. Sawchuk and focus on suicide prevention. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back talking with Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Craig Sawchuk about the recent CDC report on the increasing suicide rates in the U.S. So, Dr. Sawchuk, we know it's a growing problem, but I think the next big question is, what can we do about it? The big thing we need to do is talk about this. And this is not only from a individual who maybe is struggling with um, increasing thoughts of death or suicide, being able to help them uh, develop a voice to be able to talk about that. Uh, but it's also healthcare providers, it's family members being willing to um express their concerns, try to engage folks in conversation. Remember, one of the things, one of the main things I mentioned that's a risk factor for suicide is isolation. So breaking down that isolation through communication, making those resources available, those are key parts. Now this is like a 180, isn't it? And Tracy brought this up because it used to be that you didn't want to, you shouldn't talk about suicide because if you did, more people would try it. But not true. 
No, and we often find that the case in many things, you know, public health wise, there's this idea of, you know, don't ask, don't tell, don't say anything. What does it do is it leads to further thought suppression. Uh, it leads uh, to people um, almost viewing this as a bad thing. Um, you know, it's based more on a fear that it's going to make things worse rather than the opposite, which it can actually make things better or reduce the risk for things going forward. Recently, there was a sister of a woman who had committed suicide up in the Grand Forks area, I believe, and she wrote an eloquent obituary about how her sister's battle with depression was the true tragedy of the situation. And so I, I wonder, you know, another part of the problem, not just that we don't want to talk about suicide, but that people don't want to talk about mental health in general. How much does depression weigh in the risk of suicide? I mean, everyone who's depressed is not going to commit suicide, and everyone who commits suicide was not depressed. Right. And that, that's a very good point. And, and I know being uh, in mental health, it's a, a bit of a strange profession to be in because I actually talk a lot with people about thoughts of death and not wanting to live. But it really does happen on a continuum. It, it may start off with um, feeling depressed, and that creates a state of thinking and physically feeling and behaving where we try to withdraw, pull back, maybe become more ruminative. But then, you know, when we start to work with people that have those thoughts of death, they can transition into starting to think of plans or means, getting to that point of feeling more hopeless and, and despair, actively looking for means and making plans and then actually making some attempts. So it really does happen on a continuum. Depression is, again, one of several causes uh, that can increase that risk for suicide. But it's a very good point. It's not in every single case. And the actual rate of suicide relative to the people who are depressed is again very low, but it doesn't matter how low it is, all of this is preventable. Now the government ha has a program called the National Strategy for Suicide Prevention. Who is that and what are the, what are they doing? And is, has it been an effective program in, in your opinion? Yes, there, there's many elements to, the, to that program and I think it's, it's very much interwoven in with a larger scale approach to how do we better manage mental health because there's uh, tremendous difficulties with accessing you know good evidence-based mental health care even screening for this in the first place so ma many components of this you know one is actually using screening measures especially in the primary care context because what we do know for people that actually commit suicide the vast majority of these folks have had some contact with their primary care office within a few months of their actual suicide. Really? So there is a tremendous uh, opportunity from a population health standpoint that justifies that that screening and working with primary care yeah. teams to actually ask you know, about those suicide questions. Now, there's a difference between asking and then linking to available treatment services, and I think that's really the key. And we gotta figure out multiple layers of treatment intervention because uh, some people do not want to see a mental health provider, but they may, may actually do better if they have a hotline that they can call into, or if there's some online programs, there's been some online programs being developed for youth to help offset uh, risk for depression and, mm. and subsequent suicide. But there are some evidence-based treatments, both pharmacotherapy and psychological therapies that can be helpful. You know, it's a tragedy anytime it happens to any age group, but it's particularly tragic for, for a young person and for their parents and their family and for their peers. So what, what advice would you have for, uh, for parents? Uh, and, and talk a little bit more about the potential help that's available for kids who may be thinking about it. 
Yeah, and this is not only for kids, but it is for uh, parents or anybody affected by suicide. You know, one of the the number one uh, thing uh, from a public health that, that's free to use and easy to use is the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, and that phone number is one eight hundred two seven three. 8255. So that's the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 1 800 273 8255. Staffed 24 7, uh, 365 days per year. And there's a great example of investment in a very, very helpful service um, that can help offset things. And this is good not only for um, individuals that are struggling with feeling more suicidal in the moment, uh, but then also families as well, too. Other types of uh, treatments that are available um, are um, evidence-based psychotherapy, so cognitive behavioral therapy, which is more of a skill-based intervention that can really focus in on teaching people how do you actually deal with some of those thoughts, some of those negative thoughts of about yourself, about the world, about not wanting to live, developing behavioral skills that can help you with that social connection safety-related behaviors that can help with that. There are also some emotion regulation skills that people can learn is how do you deal with those more intense moments. When people are going through urges for not wanting to live in, in suicide, even though in the moment it feels like that's how it's going to be, it really is a limited period of time. Sometimes it can be a few moments, sometimes it lasts a little bit longer than that, but what goes up does come down and it's developing really concrete effective safety plans to help during that. You mentioned that most of the of the people who commit suicide, and maybe we're just talking about young people, but, but have had some contact with their primary care physician where there may have been potential for intervention. But is that, is that true for most teenagers who commit suicide, or do you know for sure? I don't know for sure off the top of my head because that data was based upon more adult populations. Um, however, uh, what do kids do? What do teenagers do? They probably spend more time with their friends um, and maybe are a little bit more explicit with their friends. Maybe this is more online and social media wise. Uh, but really, you want to keep that from a, a friend perspective, from a social perspective, social network perspective. You want to have a very low tolerance uh, for uh, reacting to that. So if, if there's any signs that have you worried, somebody that you're concerned about and pulling back as, as a friend in that social network, reach out, let an adult know, let their parents know, trying to break that cycle of isolation. We have just a minute left. So two questions. First of all, what do I do if someone I know is in crisis? Yeah. You talk with them. You say, hey, um, can I go with you to, to go see your primary care doctor? Or if they have a therapist or a provider, be willing to go with them. Try to establish safety with them, even if it means, hey, do you want to spend the night you know, over at my place? Mm -hmm. That might be something to help break up that isolation. Trying to establish a safe environment, too. If there are firearms or other means that they may harm themselves, get them out of the house. And what about if I find myself in crisis? Yeah, you either... The hotline. Yeah, there's the hotline. <laughs> go to the ER. Um, any time of, of night, call 911. Again, breaking out that isolation. It's really hard to do when we're being pelted and drawn down uh, by these thoughts but and these emotions, but doing so could really save your life. And once again, the number is 1-800-273-8255, and we'll put it on our uh, website. Dr. Sawchuk, thanks so much for being with us. Great. Thank you for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll talk with an expert about genetic testing and what it could mean for your health. And we'll explain why regular physical activity is key to maintaining 
health as you age. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. In a move to keep consumers safe from foodborne illness, the U.S. Department of Agriculture now requires new labels for beef products that have been mechanically tenderized. The labels alert consumers about the tenderization method and they provide information on safe cooking practices. Now, in mechanical tenderization, also called blade tenderizing, meat is pierced with needles or blades to break up tissue, making it easier to chew. The issue is that bacteria such as E. coli live on the outside surface of meats. Mechanical tenderization can bring those pathogens from the surface of the meat to the inside, which, according to USDA experts, makes safe cooking practices important. Mayo Clinic infectious diseases expert Dr. Pratish Tosh says the labels are a good thing. For the most part, most of the bacteria on a steak is going to be on the outside and should be cooked. The concern about these mechanically tenderized meats is that when you start sort of you know, poking into the meat, you're making what was the outside now getting into the inside. And if people aren't cooking them uh, completely through to well done, uh, then you can start to get bacterial infections uh, and you know, bacteria getting into the inside of the meat. Uh, and so it's important that people know whether it's been tenderized in this mechanical way uh, because it may affect how uh, people need to cook them. Uh, or potentially the risk of getting a bacterial diarrheal infection. The USDA recommends cooking mechanically tenderized beef to a minimum internal temperature of 145 degrees Fahrenheit before removing it from the heat source. And in other news, the authors of a small study published in Diabetes Care found that interrupting prolonged sitting every half hour with three minutes of light intensity walking or simple resistance activities reduced the after meal blood sugar and other cardiometabolic risk markers in patients with type 2 diabetes. The concluded that light intensity walking or resistance activities such as half squats, calf raises and knee raises may be beneficial and practical for adults who don't get scheduled exercise. More proof that moving more is good for your health. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Genetic testing. It may be the one test that can improve your health today. By providing just one sample of your DNA, researchers can assess your chances of contracting certain hereditary diseases like breast cancer or Parkinson's. But it's not all doom and gloom. Genetic testing can also help you understand your health history, including how your body metabolizes certain drugs. Here to talk about genetic testing is Dr. Richard Sharp. Dr. Sharp is the director of the Biomedical Ethics Program at the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Sharp. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about, uh, in general terms, about genetic testing. When did it really come of age? When did it really become useful? Well, we've known that uh, many diseases have an inherited component for well over 100 years, but the capacity to identify what that genetic component is and, and via a genetic test is actually pretty new. Uh, so in the 1960s, one of the first genetic tests to become widely available was a test for phenylcutinuria, or PKU. 
And a lot of Americans learned about genetic testing in the context of that test, which was administered to newborn uh, children uh, for the purpose of identifying whether they had this rare disease that was associated with the metabolism of a particular amino acid. And children that had that particular condition were able to be identified at birth placed on a special diet and really avoid most of the complications associated with that illness. And so from a public health point of view, it's one of the greatest success stories um, in history. Uh, and certainly in terms of genetic testing, one of the greatest success stories in history as well. So that, that was really the origins of widespread genetic testing in America at least. And over the last decade or so, we've seen literally thousands of new genetic tests being developed and offered for various purposes ranging from identifying individuals that have inherited predispositions to cancers, um, neurologic diseases, uh, to much more common diseases as well, like diabetes and heart disease. So who ought to have this done? I mean, it, it sounds like there's so much information that can come out of being genetically tested that, that everybody would want it. Well, it's a highly personal uh, decision. There are some people that don't want to look into the future and don't want to know that they may have this um, this genetic condition hanging over their head. Yeah, because just in case you have the gene for breast cancer, doesn't mean you're gonna get breast cancer. Absolutely. Um, and so many people don't wanna live with that uncertainty that would come from a genetic test, knowing that you may have a chance, an increased risk, um, but it's not a guarantee. So I think right now we're in an unusual position historically, where you know 10 years from now or 20 years from now, um, many of us are going to have genetic tests done, and it's going to become very routine. Uh, we're going to go to see our primary care physicians, and they're going to look at some genetic test result that's been generated by some other physician and make decisions about our care based upon that information. Uh, it's almost certainly going to be the case with regard to what we call pharmacogenetic testing, where an individual can be evaluated to determine what sorts of response they're likely, have, likely to have to particular drugs. And from that point of view, I think 10 years from now, all of us will probably have uh, some form of genetic test, pharmacogenetic testing done routinely. For instance, if you have heart disease and you got to be on a statin or I mean something like that, it would change the dosage of the statin or if you should even be on the statin at all, how would it actually affect the pharmacogenomics angle? It might affect whether or not the doctor, your doctor decides to uh, prescribe a statin for you. Uh, which particular statin they chose, and then which dose of the statin is recommended as well. So all three of those things. It's all pretty incredible. Is this test still cost prohibitive? Is that why not more people have had it? And do insurance companies pay for it? Insurance companies will pay for many of these genetic tests, but uh, it's still fairly new with regard to their comfort level here. So I think that, again, this is something that's very much evolving, and usually when a patient is deciding whether to, uh, con whether to pursue genetic testing, that's a part of the conversation, is to um, determine whether or not their insurer will cover the cost of the testing. But in terms of the overall cost, the, the cost of genetic testing has come down dramatically in the last five years. And it's around how much now? It depends on the test. So a test for the so-called breast cancer genes, BRCA1 and 2, costs right around $3,000. Uh, but a pharmacogenetic test like what we were just talking about might only cost several hundred. So if you have a positive family history for breast cancer, wouldn't it make sense to get genetically tested? Because you would know that if you had that gene, you were at increased risk and you would make sure you went and had your mammogram? <laughs> Well, again, it's very uh, a very personal uh, yeah. decision. I think many people would uh, 
would would follow that advice and would, would say this is right for me. But many people are also worried about uh, the prospect of genetic discrimination, how they might feel burdened by knowing that they have this increased risk, what it might do to their family relationship, particularly their relationship with other individuals who have breast cancer, uh, whether they might feel a deeper sense of kinship or maybe more distance from those individuals. So a lot depends on the circumstances. Or we, let's, um, people have breast cancer, are treated and survive. People can have Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease. I would imagine that people would be more concerned about those types of elderly dementia type of a thing. Yeah, the, the conditions that people sometimes express greatest concern about are neurodegenerative diseases as well as psychiatric diseases. So if you have a history of schizophrenia, say in your family, um, and you know the devastation that's associated with that illness, you may not want to know that you're at increased risk of developing the disease yourself. So neurodegenerative, you're talking about Alzheimer's. Can you predict from someone's genetic testing that they're at risk for Alzheimer's, for example? There are genetic tests that can give you some insights in terms of whether or not you're at increased risk. Many of those are are still in the very earliest phases of development, so they may not be available clinically, but only through a research study. So how do you do the test? Is this just from a blood sample? Usually through a blood sample, but it can also be done using a, a swab of the inside of your cheek as well. At the beginning of our program, Dr. Shives, uh, I think, quoted you to you is what he did. So he said, the one test that can improve your health today. And so you said the pharmacogenomics piece, you know, would affect the medications that you would take. What other ways can it influence your life and improve your life today, right now? Well, one of the things it can do is identify uh, modifiable risk factors. So things that you might be able to do today that would diminish the overall risk of disease that you have. So steps that you might take in terms of improving your diet, your lifestyle, and, and other things. And what we, what we have seen in terms of empirical studies that have been done assessing the outcomes of genetic testing is that more often than not, what patients say after they have genetic testing done is that this was a bit of a wake-up call. It reminded them of the importance of healthy living, reminded them of the importance of things that we all know we ought to be doing. We shouldn't be smoking. We shouldn't be drinking in excess. We shouldn't be uh, consuming a lot of sugars and so forth. We should be dieting and exercising regularly. So in some ways, the secondary advantage of a genetic test is not just that it tells you which diseases you're most likely to develop, but it puts in perspective the importance of all of those other environmental and behavioral choices that we make every day. I don't mean to get uh, too personal, but have you had this done? And you don't have to answer if you don't want to. Have you had it done? I'm, I'm happy to answer that. I, I have not, actually. Uh, I've thought a lot about it, and the particular occasions that have come up for me have not been um, medically indicated reasons for, uh, for pursuing genetic testing. And as curious as I am about some of those things, <laughs> I've, I've wondered if the fact that an ethicist has volunteered to have certain controversial types of genetic testing done might be an implicit endorsement of that testing. And so I've decided not to personally, but I really would like to know. All right. Dr. Richard Sharp is director of the Biomedical Ethics Program at Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Sharp. Thank you. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll explain why regular physical activity is absolutely key to maintaining health as you age. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. As we get older, Tracy, we tend to slow down. Maybe not me, but I know you're slacking off a little bit lately. <laughs> just a little bit. And generally, we accept that as a fact of life. I mean, it just happens. You do slow down. Your memory's not quite as good. It's just the way it is. But staying physically active, including exercising regularly, can play an important role in whether we age with health on our side. Indeed, our next guest calls exercise the keys to the kingdom of healthy aging. Here to talk about how to use exercise to increase the chances that you'll live a healthy life as you get older, Dr. Ed Cragen. Dr. Cragen is editor-in-chief of the book called The Mayo, Mayo Clinic on Healthy Aging and the author of How Not to Be My Patient. Dr. Cragen's day job is as a cancer specialist and a palliative care specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program again, Dr. Cragen. Good to have you. Thank you. Great Always nice to, to see you. Here. Thank you, Tom. You're going the distance. Absolutely, because nobody cares, Tom. The healthcare system is in chaos. It is not a system. Marcus Welby is probably in rehab. Uh, <laughs> and we, we need to take care of ourselves. Uh, Dr. Kildare is no longer available. There's a fascinating book by Dan Butner called Blue Zones. And he looks at those pieces of real estate on the planet where people live the longest. And these are places like Sardinia, like Azerbaijan in the central part of Asia, Loma Linda, California, certain cities in Peru. And the Des most- Des Moines, don't forget Des Moines. <laughs> uh, Waterloo. Waterloo. <laughs> Waterloo. And the most consistent factor in the lives of these people is regular conscientious physical activity. No so kidding. I wanted to go back and say, what is healthy aging? Is healthy aging, uh, exercise is a component of healthy aging, With or is it? Healthy aging. Well, exercise. I mean, I thought you were supposed to rest when you retired. No, if, if you rest, you'll be resting for a long time. <laughs> but the data, again, are overwhelming that the usual recommendation is 150 minutes of physical activity a day. That's a no-brainer. That's like 30 minutes most days of the week. And that's enough to dramatically decrease the risk of stroke, depression, and heart disease. And if we look at the great cripplers of our society, obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, and so on, the antidote, the antidote is not in the medical community with a pill, but with a running shoe that I have right here. The future belongs to the fit. How, why do you think it is so difficult to overcome the problem of obesity in this country? It's clearly multifactorial, Tom, as, as we've often said. And it's not a case of here is your... 1500 calorie diet and here's your application for the YMCA. There are profound emotional psychological issues and the person who's been most visible about this is Oprah Winfrey. I used to get the New England Journal of Medicine but they rejected seven of my manuscripts. I now get Sports Illustrated, The Racing <laughs> Form and Oprah. And you probably quit Playboy after the yeah, uh, well, first I, of the year. Yeah. I'm I was a centerfold several years ago before <laughs> surgery. But if you look at Oprah's magazine of this month, on the cover is Oprah, and she says, this is it. I'm finally turning the corner uh, on the weight issue. So here's a, 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 an iconic woman, a towering personality who has struggled with weight, showing how difficult it is. So if there's a disease of the soul, if there is an emotional lesion that's not addressed, all the exercise and lifestyle modifications simply will not work. 
And you know, Oprah uh, made a big investment in Weight Watchers. Did you see that? And it uh, was about twelve dollars a share, I think, when she bought it, and it's twenty-five now. So <laughs> we should have hopped on that bandwagon. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose we should have. Yeah. Well, what about some? You know, if you, I didn't start running until I was in my forties. You know, what do you say to people who are in their sixties and they don't have to start with marathons? You know, what do you tell people who just are not? regular exercisers. We emphasize to them, Tracy, that this needs to be a lifestyle overhaul. For example, we were at a function over the weekend and we fully anticipated that there would be dinner, some sort of a buffet. There was no dinner. It was high fat, sugary, Christmas type stuff. Mm. So we, we looked at it. I got chest pain. It became <laughs> nauseous. And then we simply excused ourselves and got a real meal. Whenever Peggy and I travel, we bring our own meals on board. We find the vegetarian restaurants. So it takes effort, but if we're dead, that effort ain't going to count. What do you think about the uh, wearable devices um, to help people count count steps, count exercising, count sure. steps, etc.? I'm smiling because many people will have a stroke just trying to upload all this stuff on their computer. <laughs> and I think the wearables are, are cool, but the people that buy the wearables are the people that are motivated anyway to exercise. So it is nice to see how many steps you've worked. But the bottom line, there needs to be that inner locus of control. That decision that we make is that I want to take charge of my health and well-being because the system is not there to do it for us. I know that you are a runner, and I have um, paid attention to running a little bit more now since I started. And it's I have heard that the average age of the beginning runner is getting older and older all of the time, which I think is kind of curious that um, as people are into middle age, they're starting running for the first time. When did you start running? I started to run when I was eight years of age. Why? I went to a Catholic school in the bowels of Newark, New Jersey. This was not Shaker Heights or Edina. And we had no play area. This was in the middle of the, of the ghetto. And they had us run around the block. And if you lost the race, you had to sit in church for the noontime. <laughs> so there's <was laughs> a really- That's your motivation. Absolutely, that's how it all started. But I am so grateful for the coaches I've had, the opportunities that I've had, and it creates a sense of wellness and empowerment that you cannot replace with a pill. So what do you want to say to folks who, I'm not saying that everybody should become a runner, but maybe to start swimming, or is it even just walking? I think it's any sort of physical activity, vacuuming, using a broom, anything that increases our pulse and makes us perspire is healthy. But I would encourage our listeners, touch base with your doctor, and equally importantly, invest once or twice in a personal trainer. The equipment is very intimidating. Lifting free weights can be dangerous. Invest in yourself. Invest in yourself. And that way we can go the distance in the most important race of our lives. Walking is just as good as anything Absolutely. as long as you do it every day. Running a four-minute mile or walking for four minutes has the same benefit on our health and well-being. All right, Dr. Ed Cragen, cancer specialist, palliative care specialist, author, highly acclaimed speaker and lecturer. Always great to have you on the program. Likewise, Thanks um, for coming here. Thank you. That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network. 
where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We will be answering your questions in upcoming programs. Hello to all of our listeners in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, who hear Mayo Clinic Radio on WZSKAM in Everett. And to our listeners on KROEAM in Sheridan, Wyoming. These are just two of the more than 70 stations that broadcast our program nationwide. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.